Well, good morning. It is good to see you folks this morning. Well, thank you to the kids for coming up with the palm branches and for Eli reading the scripture for us. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he is coming for a purpose, he's coming to die for us. I'd like to invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, we're going to be in just a few moments in Matthew chapter 27. Uh, we are uh, observing the Lord's Supper this morning, and so if you're a visitor with us, I don't want you to be caught off guard by that. If that's something new for you, uh, we're going to give instructions about what that means and how we do that here together as a, uh, as a church family, all right? So you're in the right place, and I'm glad that you're here this morning. You're going to be in Matthew chapter 27. I think that there's um, really two big questions that we enter into uh, and we, we talk about these commonly, uh, the big question for us, biggest question for us is this, who is God? I mean, that's just a, I mean, we could talk for days upon days upon days upon days about our opinion and our perceptions, our understanding of who is God, and, and that would launch us into this next, I think, uh, secondary question that this seems to always be on our minds is how does God relate to me? You know, how does God relate to me? How is it that I can understand who God is? And so there is this truth of who God is, and then we want to make that personal. And I hope you've done that, and I hope you've considered that before. Who is God as uh, He's revealed Himself to you? When we think about God, there's this challenge um, and, and kind of a, um, a dual competition, it seems like, as we look at Scripture, what we're going to find is when you're reading that Old Testament, right? It's okay to read that one, right? I think is read that Old Testament, that, that, that historical book for the most part. It's got some wisdom in there, it says, some wisdom literature in there. But what we see is this. We're looking for this question, who is God? And can I tell you, a lot of times in that Old Testament, we're seeing God and He's, he's kind of given this portrayal of himself as a God who is, I mean, usually angry, and sometimes he's scary. I mean, when we think about the different ways that he interacts with his people, we, we see, I mean, stories about like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And Sodom and Gomorrah, where it's God sending down fire from heaven to destroy a city that's sinful. And we say, whoa, hold on a second, that's that's kind of scary for us. And then, man, if you just keep on reading, you're going to eventually get into those prophets, the major ones and the minor ones. And, and all of them together are pretty much going to give this idea. It's going to teach this lesson for us that God is sending a messenger, sending a chosen prophet in all of those books. That's mostly the Old Testament. But he's sending this chosen prophet. And that prophet's saying, some rough stuff. He's saying, hey, God's judgment is coming upon you. And he's not talking specifically to us, if you will. He's talking specifically to God's chosen people. So we've got this picture of who is God. Well, he seems like in the Old Testament that he's this mean, uh, vengeful, if you will, at times, angry, judging God that's always talking about punishment and judgment. And we go back even to the first couple of chapters there. Chapter 3 of Genesis, in fact, tells us this. That after God created man and he gave man woman and created woman from man's rib, then there's man and woman in the garden. But they fall for, they, they subside, they, they, they go along with Satan's plan to answer that question, who is God? 
And as they are willingly participants in challenging who God is, we see that God, again, Old Testament, He responds. And He says, you got to get out of this garden. You can't come in here anymore. You've disobeyed me. Now, that's one way that we typically answer that question, who is God? And maybe you have friends that would read the Old Testament, and they say, hey, I sound like a mean, scary, angry God. But then you come over to the New Testament, and we see this picture where God is being portrayed through Jesus. And often what we see, and this is sometimes distorted for us, but we see, hey, God is a God of love. In fact, it says that in 1 John chapter 4. It says that God is, in fact, love. And we see that God sends Jesus, and Jesus loves the we always talk about God loving the children now. God loves those children, and then God loves you, and God loves the world, and God loves everybody, and God loves everything, and everything about God is just God, God, good, good, love, love, great. And so we're often perplexed here because we see God of the Old Testament, angry, vengeful God, God of the New Testament, and man, that guy would never do anything to, you know, to, harm us or hurt us in any kind of way he would never never cause harm to anyone he's just a soft loving lover of love that's pretty much how we would see God and then we come to Matthew chapter 27 and we come to this journey that we've been on together if you're joining with us good morning for you to be here for sure but the journey that we've been on together we're walking through the passion week with Jesus and many people receive the end result of the Passion Week, but they reject the concept of what happens and what we're going to see in today's text because we don't really know how to answer this question. Who is God? And how has God made Himself known to us? So I want you to consider, we're going to do actually, I was told that every, every decent sermon has three points, right? And a point, is that right, Porkchop? There's three points and a point, Right? Y'all don't want to hear me read poetry, I can promise you, all right? But what I've got, I'm going to do three preliminary points, all right? So that would be an adequate sermon. Then I'm going to do three more just to make sure we got a pretty decent one, all right? Here's what I'd like to ask you to consider with me, okay? When we think this morning about Matthew 27, when we think this morning about the part of the journey of Jesus, we see a confusing picture for us. So I want you to consider three things. The first thing we want you to consider this morning is this, that the cross is a self-willed action. A self-willed action. The Scripture tells us this in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. For this reason, Jesus says, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now hear this, in John 10, 18, he says, no one takes my life from me do you hear that no one takes my life from me but the voluntary self-willed action he says but i lay it down of my own accord i mean it can't get any clearer than that folks you say that scripture is confusing listen to clearly worded scripture jesus tells his disciples and the crowds y'all can't kill me you can't take my life from me, 
But instead, because Jesus is God, Son of God come to live among us to serve the purpose of God and God being in control of every aspect of what's going to happen with Jesus, Jesus says, let me tell you something, I freely by my own self-determination come and I'm going to lay this thing down. You don't have to take Jesus' life. He's just going to give it to you. And he's going to do that as part of God's sovereign will, sovereign plan for saving us. I want you to keep this in mind. John 10, 18 specifically, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus says, I have authority, that comes from God because he is God, to lay my life down and then catch it. I have authority to take it up again. You can't stop me from being alive. Jesus says, you can't kill me, and you can't stop me from being alive. Figure that one out. He says, this charge I have received from my Father. This is what God wants through Jesus, and this is how Jesus responds with obedience. He says, hey, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. You will not kill me. I will give you my life. You will not force upon me your demands. I'm going to lay down for you everything because I want to. Now, that's one consideration. As we prepare our hearts to observe the Lord's Supper, we want to get into the, the text in Matthew 27. Consider one for me this. The cross was a self-willed action. Jesus was not drug out of heaven and said, we're going to make you. No, he says, here I am. Here I am. I will take up the form of a human body. I will live perfectly in that human body. And then when they come for me to arrest me, I will allow it. You get it? I will allow it. And when they march around me in a circle and spit on me and punch me in the face, I will allow it. And when they go to kill me, they will not be able to because I'm going to beat them to it. I'm going to give them my life. Now, second consideration is this. The cross, and this is a big word for us, was a substitutionary action. It was a substitutionary action. So what the Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, confusing passage for us, but let's just chew on it for a second. Paul writes, for our sake, Christian, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin." even though he knew no sin. You get that? He says, hey, I want you to know this, that Jesus did not simply die on the cross, but when Jesus died, he became sin itself. Now listen to what Paul says. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, we, that's me and you, brother, that's me and you, sister. We might become the righteousness of God. In other words, we will again become right with God. How do we do that? Jesus is going to make himself a substitute for me. And I want to tell you, as I know from experience, folks treat substitutes wrong. I mean, rough. And what Jesus does for us here is this. He says, hey, your sin is about to get something. And it's going to get something that's going to be disappointing for you. Your sin is about to get something. 
right? My daddy used to do this thing, and y'all, I know, y'all are a modern-thinking group of folks. When I would get in trouble as a kid, and I'm not telling you how to parent, I'm telling you how I was raised, all right? When I get in trouble as a kid, my daddy would always, always, always tell me, go to your room, and I'll be there in a minute. So one time I remember I went to my room and I waited for a minute. And he didn't show up. So I thought it'd be a good idea to go and remind him that he didn't come in a minute. You know what he said to me? Go back to your room and I'll be there in a minute. Boy, he showed up that second time. I can't remember what happened, but I remember I didn't care for it. And here's the idea. God has determined sin deserves something. You need to keep that in mind. I want you to consider that. What does your sin deserve? What does it deserve? And you say, well, my sin's not that bad because my sin is not as bad as so-and-so's sin. That's what we do as, as humans. We say, my sin's not as bad as so-and-so's sin. So my sin really doesn't deserve that bad. You know that my daddy never once, and this is just my upbringing again. I'm just I'm a dad parent. I'm just telling you. My, da- my daddy never once said, how, how much do you think I should punish you? It's almost as if my daddy had already predetermined by his own strength and power and emotion and will all work together, he knew how much he's going to punish me. We never sat down at the table and I said, well, let's, what do you think would be fair? The one in authority should never have to ask the one in submission what's fair. God has determined that sin is going to receive something. You need to see that. God has determined that sin is going to receive something. And Jesus took what God determined needed to be received. So he became sin is what Paul tells us. Unique, unique expression, right? The cross was a substitutionary action. So now put it together. Jesus said, I'll go and I will take what you, God, determined their sin deserves. And whatever it is, I'll take it for them so that they don't have to take it. Now, third thing to consider for us this morning. We're just warming up. You ready? The cross was a satisfactory action. Get this. And listen, believer, if you can understand that the cross is a satisfactory action, it will change the way you live. It will change the way you live. Here's what the Scripture says. Romans 5, 9 comes right after Romans 5, 8, of course, right? But God demonstrated His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, here's what it says in 5, 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by that substitutionary blood, much more shall we be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. So here's the idea, all right? The idea is that I get in trouble with my daddy, all right? I've got an older brother, all right? Don't talk about him much because this is going to be fabricated right here. 
But if I get in trouble with my daddy, imagine my brother, my older brother coming up and saying, oh, wait, you said for him to go to his room and wait for you, then you're going to come down there and give that punishment that you determined. I'll go and take his place. Fabric's hypothetical situation, folks, that ain't never happened. Never happened. This is being recorded, and I want it to be. That has never happened. Concept is, imagine my brother coming in and saying, hey, Daddy, I know you're about to whip him good, all right? Any of you kids unfamiliar with that expression, go home, ask your parents about it, all right? But I know you're about to whoop him good, all right? I want you to, to unleash his punishment that he deserves on me instead. Now, here's what you would understand. Satisfactory means this. My daddy, if he were to agree to something like that, he would take my brother. And this is how my daddy did it, all right? I'm not telling you how to parent. But my daddy was tall enough where he would take you by the arm. I've told some of y'all this before. And he would raise you up to where you, just your tippy toes could touch the ground, right? And then he would take uh, what we had. I told y'all about it, my plum tree in the front yard. Didn't have any sticks on it. Don't know why. But he would take a plum switch, right? And my daddy would catch me across the back of the leg. He'd say, oh, did you call that hotline? No. Mm -mm. I was scared. So imagine my daddy grabs my brother for what I did wrong, grabs my brother, picks him up, wears him out on the back of those legs, whelps, whelps, crying, tears, not everything. My brother can't even walk, all right, just doing this, going back to, going back to his seat. Then my daddy wouldn't turn to me next because the punishment had been satisfied. You get that? Punishment had been satisfied. So with that in mind, turn with me. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. I want to show you. Here's what happens. We're going to go in order. And we're going to walk through the final hours of Jesus as a human being. All right? I want to say that in particular because Jesus is not dead. Come back next Sunday and I'll tell you how I know that. All right? But we're going to walk through the final hours of Jesus as a human being on the face of the earth. Now, here's what happens. The Scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 27, if you begin reading with me in verse 27, the Scripture says, Then the soldiers of the governor, that's going to be Pilate, remember, took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. This is after they had made that decision, the crowd had made that decision. Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? Do you want the one that leads the insurrection, the one that's possibly even a murderer, or do you want this preacher? And they said, Give us the murderer. Give us the murderer. Give us the insurrection leader. Give us the person that causes dissension. Give us the person that leads the revolt. Give us the person that's probably going to kill us in our sleep. Give us him. We want him. And what do you want me to do with Jesus, Pilate says? And the crowd begins to chant. What was it again? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. So immediately following that, Scripture says, again, if you want me in chapter 27, verse 27, Scripture says, Then the soldiers of the governor, Pilate, took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Remember, we said that's a bunch of folks. That's anywhere from 400 up to maybe even 1,000 folks. Roman soldiers. And when you get 1,000 men who are big, tough, muscular men together, and they have someone to prove their manhood against, this is going to get ugly. All right. Verse 28, 
and they stripped Jesus. And that means, folks, not in the G-rated version of they tore a hole in his clothes. Uh, the scripture tells us that he had two garments. He had a seamless garment that was his inner robe, and then he had an outer garment, which was a tunic. So basically, they took off his jacket, and they took off the one piece of clothing that he had. He is stark naked at this point, surrounded by hundreds of men. Why would they do that? They want to embarrass him. They want to humiliate him. Scripture says this, verse 28, they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed, which is like a staff, in his right hand. And then they began kneeling before him and they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 30, and they spit on Jesus and they took the reed that was in his hand and they struck him on the head. Now, if you'll remember, this is what's happening after Jesus has been awake all night long. And he has been abused verbally. He's been abused emotionally. He's been abandoned by his disciples. And then some of them came back. He has been mistreated in multiple ways throughout the evening. He's been lied about. He's been had his words twisted and distorted. And now, throughout a sleepless night, these men surround him and they mock him. They mock him. And Jesus maintains this power to call 12 legions of angels. Remember that? 12 legions of angels. I mean, that's more than a battalion, all right? You know how many angels it takes to take out a battalion? Uno. That's Spanish for just one. So the concept here is this. Jesus volunteered to be in this place. You deserve what he's getting and it's part of God's plan against your sin. It says that he is mocked by these soldiers. Verse 31. Verse 31 says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and now they put his clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. You say, oh, well, I thought he was being crucified at this point. No, 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 no. We've not gotten to him being crucified yet. Now, verse 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Now, we often see pictures in just a little, little, little detail. I don't want to bog down a little details because we've got things to do this morning to worship Jesus. But I do want to tell you this. You often see this whole, what we call lowercase t situation. And that's often what we see in movies of Jesus is walking through the streets of Jerusalem with this lowercase t, all right? Keep in mind first that Jesus, that's not the cross Jesus was probably crucified on, but instead, Jesus is carrying what we would call to be the capital T, and he's carrying that crossbar. That's the kind of cross we understand Jesus was possibly, probably crucified on, capital T, and Jesus has that crossbar. He's just carrying that. The whole thing together is around 250 pounds. So after he's been scourged, after he's been sleepless night, after he's been beaten, after he's been spit on, after he's had people punch him in the face and then hit him in the head with this, with this staff, 
Now he's carrying what's probably estimated, I would say maybe 50 to 75 pounds across his back. Apparently, the Gospels will kind of intertwine there. Harmony of the Gospels would tell us this. It seems like Jesus at this point, at this point, is no longer the carpenter's son now that has been walking everywhere he goes and raised. He's fit, physically fit. He's no longer physically able to carry this 50-pound crossbar through the winding streets of Jerusalem. And keep this in mind. Everywhere he goes since his Passover, every Jew on the planet has been summoned to be there. The crowds are thick. And he is walking through, walking against the crowds, walking across the uneven uh, cobblestone. And he is going through here. And as he's traveling through, we said last week, Jewish law, all right? Jewish law would say this, let's always give a convicted person the benefit of the doubt. So by Jewish law, there's supposed to be at least four, at least four times where they stop whoever's walking to their death. They stop and they say, hey, does anybody in here, can anybody in here bear witness that this man is not guilty? Because if you can bear witness that he's not guilty, we're going to release him right now. Scripture does not record even one instance of that taking place. They kind of skip that part. And Jesus is struggling to get through this crowd, struggling with that 50 to 75 pound crossbar on his back because his back and that scourging looks like butchered meat. He's in agony and pain, physically exhausted, cannot continue. This is why we see the insertion here of Simon the Serene, okay? So this is Jesus, and he's being paraded through these crowds. Now remember that Pilate has made a sign. At this point, the sign is supposed to be hung around Jesus' neck. All right, And that sign proclaims the sentence that he's guilty of. So it says, King of the Jews. So as Jesus at Passover is walking through with all these Jews around, it's not a, oh, poor Jesus. But instead, the majority of the crowd is spitting at him and yelling at him and trying to push him and get him off balance. He's worn out. He's paraded through the streets so that he can be humiliated. You say, why would they go through all this? Rome's goal is to publicly humiliate a prisoner to discourage anyone from ever going against Rome again. Jesus is carrying that crossbar voluntarily for you and for me. And he is doing this because this is what God has determined sin deserves. 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is the kind of punishment that God, the authority, has said, when you sin, this is what punishment you should receive. And Jesus said, I got it. And so at this point, he's physically exhausted, wiped out, worn out, beaten to a pulp, cannot possibly stand, so they bring in Simon the Serene so that they can continue. Now, what this does, of course, this makes Jesus more of a target as he's still got the sign around his neck and he's still walking through the streets. Pick up with me then, verse 35. We're going to get there. You say, well, 
Is he crucified yet? No, 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 not yet. We're going to get there. Here we go. Verse 35. And when they had crucified him, now here's the idea. Matthew skips a lot of what Luke would tell us, all right? But it says, when they crucified him, then they divided his garments among themselves. This is the Roman soldiers there. And they're casting lots for his garments. It says, verse 36, then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And that's the most concise of the Gospels. That's the most concise description of they crucified him. And so what I want to say to you is this, and I've, I wrestle with this. I do, all right? But I recognize that you have small children in the room. But I would say to you, out of respect for that, I will not begin to describe to you in detail what this means. Because you and I don't have the stomach for it. Briefly, though, briefly, I will say this to you. They take Jesus, who has walked probably a mile from Pilate's house, Pilate's headquarters, to a place that's just outside the city. It's along a main street, so this stuff that we see often of how it's off in the distance, it's up on a hill, it's an isolated location, no. Rome wants people to be publicly humiliated as they suffer to death so a couple of discrepancies for us that i just i know man when i i've watched these movies and i'm like man that's, that looks pretty rough it's not it's horrible they take the prisoner and they can't gamble for that garment if he's wearing it so they again strip jesus completely stark naked they lie him down and what happens when they lie jesus down you would say, man, as soon as they poke me with a nail, I'm jumping up, I'm getting out of there. There's two Roman guards, part of our team of four. So two Roman guards take the prisoner. They lie the prisoner down. One Roman guard lays across his chest, full body, laid across his chest. The other lays across his legs. And this suspends, this, this keeps the prisoner from moving at all. The other guards then take the what would be five inch by three eighths of an inch spikes. All right, we say it was nails. Spikes. And Rome has learned to strategically position those spikes in the feet and in the hands and the wrist so that they won't come out. Once they fasten this prisoner, Jesus, to the cross, they've now attached that top part of the T, and the bottom part of the T, all right? They're going to fasten the sign just at the very top part of the T, and they have dug a hole, all right? Now, keep in mind, they've dug a hole in the ground, and they're going to lift up that cross, and that cross is going to drop into that hole. And when that cross drops into that prepared hole, then all of the weight of the prisoner Jesus's body is going to come down on those spikes those three the one in his feet the two in his hands and gravity is going to pull him down and pull him down and pull him down when we get to please don't forget you're reading through and you're getting into the seven last sayings of Jesus from the cross which is wonderful study if you've never done that before read about the seven last sayings of Jesus from the cross for Jesus to utter a syllable 
he has to press in on the one five-inch spike that's now been uh, drilled through his two feet. He presses in so that he can alleviate the pain, the numbness in his shoulders, and allow his lungs to contract just enough to take a small breath. It is excruciating pain for him to say a word. And the one that bothers me the most, one that just is just phenomenal for me. Son, behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. It's one of his seven. Blows my mind. He's not having a simple conversation over tea. He is in a torturous pain. Matthew says, and when they crucified him. That's where Jesus is. He is, last thing, and then I know we've got to move on. Remember for me, the way Rome works, he's not suspended 50 feet in the air. The average height, they want to get this prisoner up high enough where people can walk by and look in his eyes. So his feet are about two feet maximum from the ground. So he's about, what would that be? About right here. He's about right here. And now the people that can walk by who have seen this sign, King of the Jews, or the Romans who love to inflict torture and pain on someone, they can walk by and they can cuss him, they can jeer him, they can mock him, they can spit on him, they can whatever they want to. They look him square in the eye and they condemn him. Which is what he volunteered for. Which is what he said, I know And I don't know how you understand who is God. This is how I understand who is God. When Jesus shows up, he's not letting it play out day by day. He's saying, let's figure this one out, God. No, Jesus knew what this pain would feel like. He knew what this torture would be like. Living around Jerusalem, he'd seen this happen on a daily basis. Crucifixion is a common occurrence here. Jesus is familiar, but even more than that, As God, with the knowledge of God, he knew this is why he came. And he volunteered to do it. Because you deserve it. Because you're little, insignificant. It's just a joke. It's just a few words. It's just a bad attitude. Those little things, this is what it deserves. This is what rebellion against God deserves. So Jesus is in your place here. And he's not going to just get off that cross, but watch this. Pick up with me verse 45. That was from 9 until 12. Verse 45 picks up around noon. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That's from noon until 3. Dark. (laughs) Darkness. From noon until until three. Is that like a cloud hanging over Jesus? No, that's darkness over the entire face of the earth, we would understand. It says, verse 46, and now, oh, excuse me, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. And that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, He who knew no sin right here became sin. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. 
And one of them at once ran. And he took a sponge and filled it with sour wine. And they put it on a reed and they gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And just so you understand the English translation. And Jesus yielded up his spirit. Jesus says, you can't take my life from me. I'm just going to give it to you. Later on when the soldiers come and they're going to break the legs, that's the request. Literally, as Jesus is right here around 3 o'clock, the scripture indicates for us that the high priest, the Jewish priest, that they are actually in front of the Roman governor again, and they're saying, hey, Passover's coming, and we don't want to see these guys uh, defile our Passover celebration, so will you go through and have the Roman guards, the centurions, would you let them go ahead and break their legs, because when they break their legs, they no longer can push up to breathe, so they're going to immediately begin to suffocate. And I've been through it, folks, and I've got to tell you, I'm, I, I, I wrestle with this because I look at the science behind it, look at the research behind it, look at all the different gospel accounts of it, and I say, well, what technically killed Jesus? And we see that as he's hanging there for, the, for these six hours that Friday for you and for me, as he's hanging up there, maybe it's just a pure exhaustion just wears him out, some would say. Maybe it's because his back that's been tortured and beaten up is pulling against that, that wood cross, and it's just the excruciating pain. It just wears him out completely. Some have said, the more, uh, more scientific among us would say that the, the fluids inside Jesus' body have been to collect as he's hanging in this position. They begin to collect around his heart and begin to press in on his heart until it literally ruptures his heart. Let me tell you what killed Jesus according to what God has said through Jesus. He did. He simply wanted to come and be obedient so that you would not face the wrath of God because of your sinfulness. And he came self-willed and said, they can't do it and have eternal life. So I'll do it for them. So I'll do it for them. And when Jesus came, what you deserved, He took. What you deserved, He took. I'm not that bad of a person. You're probably wrong. What you deserved, He became sin. And my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? says, in essence, who is God? God is one who cannot look on little sin and therefore cannot look on big sin. And he sure enough can't look on consistent sin. Jesus becomes sin. He's there on the cross. God turns and Jesus can sense it. I have become sin in place of sinners. I don't miss it. Last point that I ask you to consider is this. You are invited this morning. You never have to face eternal judgment, damnation to hell. You never have to face it if you'll allow Jesus in faith to take your penalty for you. He is a perfect 
satisfactory, self-willed substitute. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, as we come to you this morning, we've not scratched the surface on what you paid, what you did, what you endured for us. We've, we, we, we don't want to romanticize it. We don't want to make it something that it's not. It's very simply this. You wanted to die for us. We needed you to die for us. You came and died for us. And God's anger towards our sin is satisfied only in you. Only in you. Thank you, Jesus. Believer, in your prayer life, I invite you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So now, church, you and I have been invited to live without fear, without misinterpretation of who God is. God is a powerful, holy, loving God who despises our sinfulness. He is a holy God who cannot tolerate our sin, and so it is His plan. Can you say it with me? His plan. To send Jesus, who willingly volunteers to come and to take my place so that I can have life. If, you don't ex if you're not living with that kind of life right now, if you're living with guilt, you're living with shame, you're living with sin, you're living with struggle, you're living with, I just can't shake it, can I invite you, come to Jesus repeatedly and just let His blood cleanse you of your sin. That's what He's done. Father in heaven, give us the strength, the courage, the faith to allow you to be everything for us that we need and can't be for ourselves. And it's these things we pray in your holy name.